This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 534. And the quote of the day is, the measure of intelligence is your ability to adapt and change. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 534, and I have a bit of a, a public service announcement, if you will, and it's about hearing and hearing loss, and hearing loss is something that all drummers face, and it can happen just by playing drums at a high volume for just a few minutes. So you have a couple options. One, you can get foam earplugs that just block and muffle the sound to the point where you can't hear yourself or your bandmates play clearly. Plus, they're pretty uncomfortable. Or you can get Vibes earplugs. And what they do is just reduce the volume of loud music to a safer and more comfortable level. They lower the volume by 22 decibels, so you can still hear everything clearly. Plus, Vibes are so much more comfortable than one-size-fits-all earplugs, since each pair of Vibes includes three sizes of interchangeable ear tips. So if you want to be able to continue to play your drums throughout your life and able to hear, Vibes will allow you to protect your hearing health without compromising your ability to play and listen to music. Spending about 20 bucks now is a heck of a lot cheaper than spending thousands of dollars on hearing aids down the road. Use the promo code code resource to get 15% off plus free shipping at discovervibes.com. That's discovervibes.com. Use the promo code resource, discovervibes.com. Use the promo code resource. Check them out. All right. Now that that's out of the way and your ears are protected, let's get into this conversation with the amazing Anton Fig. And Anton Fig is best known for being the house drummer for David Letterman for three decades talking about the gig of a lifetime, but he had a very successful career before that and then did the David Letterman thing and then right after that jumped right in with Joe Bonamassa. And this conversation is wide ranging and we talk a lot about about styles and skill sets and going deep and his influences from growing up in South Africa and just an amazing conversation that I've wanted to have for a long time and you'll hear why uh, as soon as we start this conversation. And I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with the one and only Anton Fig. Anton Fig, how are you, my friend? Thanks so much for being here. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. Of course. Uh, I have to yeah. tell you, uh, I, I want to let you know publicly that for the better part of a decade, I played your your signature snare from Yamaha, and, uh-huh. and that snare treated me extremely well. I recorded multiple records with it. I toured all around the country with it. Everyone raved mm-hmm. about it from engineers to, you know, front of house guys, you know, uh, monitor guy, everyone. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. it got water damage and uh, and it got ruined and never to be never to be played again. But it 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 did me well for a very long time. So thank you for an amazing. Oh, amazing yeah, drum. it's a pleasure. It's a it is a fantastic drum. And um and uh, I really love it. I use it, you know, I use it a lot all the time mm-hmm. and because it works so well in so many applications. And, um, you know, it, it's got like depth and a lot of crack and you can tune it high, you can tune it low. And uh, I mean, I was I was talking to um, drummer Lamar Carter and he was telling me about the drum, how much he loved it. And in fact, Kevin Shirley, the producer, mm-hmm. uh, 
I gave him a drum like years and years and years ago when they first came out. And, um, and he, he did Journey and Aerosmith and like all these like incredible bands. And he, he told me that just about all of them he made the drummers use my snare drum because he liked the way it recorded so well. Huh. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a absolutely fantastic drum. And, and uh, you know, Yamaha doesn't make it anymore. They stopped the signature series. Which but is mine, unfortunate. It really is. Apparently mine was the best-selling drum. And, it's, and, and it was um, a beautiful drum, too. It's a beautiful drum. And, and, um, and uh, so I needed another drum. I, just, I have a few, you know, but I needed one. I didn't have that many. And I wanted another one so that I'd have one for a certain kit. Um, and um, I had to buy it. I had to find <laughs> one, which was hard, and I had to buy it, um, which is fine because they're so they're all so consistent and they're all they're all so good. I was you know I was happy to pay for it, quite honestly. Right. It's just interesting, you know, if you find one on if you find one on eBay or something, and you say, "Hey, this is uh, this is Anton Fig. I'd love to buy that Anton Fig." I know. <laughs> I actually found one in Canada, and it was brand new. Nice. And I don't know. Some shop had it hidden away, so I managed to get that one. Amazing. I should. Uh, I should yeah. publicly thank my buddy Mike for he he uh, was a manager at a, at a drum shop, and I went in and I was looking at the snare, and I was like, "This snare is so amazing." And he said, yeah. "He said, why don't you buy it?" And I said, "You know, at the time I was I don't know nineteen or something like that." And I think the uh, drum was like six hundred bucks or something. And I said, I don't. I said I can't. I don't have six hundred dollars to buy it. And he said, yeah. How about how about you give me two seventy five for it? And wow. I and I have no idea. I don't know how that well, works. I don't know because that seems pretty low for dealers' cost. If but if they're tacking on like you know two thirds percentage profit, it seems like a lot. But anyway, it's um, I don't know how it works either. Me neither, no but idea. it worked, and 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 I got it for ten ten or so years. So uh, again, so thank you for uh, that. I just great. wanted to start with that. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, I'd I'd like to touch. I I want to touch a little bit on on you growing up in South Africa and and making the the move over to the states. I know that you moved to Boston to go to the conservatory. Um, mm -hmm. One, what was it like growing up in South Africa when you were growing up, and how how did some of that how did some of the music in South Africa affect the way that you played? And then coming to the States, uh, what was sort of the precipice behind you moving here? Was it better opportunity? Was it better schooling? Uh, what did, what was the reason for the move? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I grew up a really long time ago. And then like in those days, um, there was no YouTube and all that. There was actually no video machines. Mm -hmm. um, and, in, in South Africa, when I was growing up, there was no TV. I grew up without any television. I, you know, I only they got it like after I left South Africa. So all we had to listen to music with was uh, records that people brought back. And there was um, a radio station, a shortwave radio station from Lorenzo Marx, which is now Mozambique, that would kind of get a feed from England. So we would hear stuff that was going on in, say, London, and, um, and, and records that people brought over. And then, but in addition to that, there was the South African music, which is like the Paul Simon Graceland kind of music. Mm -hmm. So I heard a lot of that kind of stuff growing up. And, um, 
And my folks, my dad had a big jazz collection and classical collection. So I heard, I got that at home. But in terms of like the stuff that I listened to was, um, it was like Lloyd Price, you know, uh, uh, and, and James Brown. We got some of that down there. And of course, when the English invasion started happening, then um, people brought those records down, obviously the Beatles and Stones and Hendrix and all that stuff. And so that was the stuff that I really, that I really kind of related to. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I'd been playing before all that hit, you know, I was like into Elvis and all that, like just pre Beatley stuff. And you mentioned um, that your dad had a huge jazz collection. Was he a player as well? No, he wasn't a player, but he was like a patron. You know, he would he would have parties and like you know the um, the local musicians would come and play at our house. Visiting musicians would come play, and my mother played piano, and so we had this nice Steinway piano in the house. And um, and in fact, some visiting classical pianists needed to practice, and so I got to learn the the Schumann piano concerto in A minor. Not learn it, but like really hear it a million times because um, I heard him practicing it all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, still my one of my absolute favorite piano concertos. Um, but so there was a lot of music in the house. And, and, uh, and you know, South Africa was kind of a weird place at that time. It was still in the, uh, I was pre-Mandela coming out of prison. So it was still in the apartheid era. And, um and the only place that you could have multiracial bands was either in your home or on the university campus. Hmm. So my folks would often have parties and they'd have bands come to the house. And um, so I got to play, you know, I got to hear and play with a bunch of like the local musicians. Um, and that kind of music, and I'm talking about like the African you know, the Paul Simon style Graceland music that that we heard on the radio all around us all the time and in the streets and that. So, so it was, um, I guess I got a pretty rounded, um, a rounded, uh, what's the word set of music that I heard because by the time I got the Letterman show, uh, I knew Paul, one of the reasons Paul hired me was he said, I knew a lot of the music that, that, that he knew. And mm -hmm. I don't really even know how I knew all that stuff, but somehow <laughs> I picked up all this kind of music growing up and listen, had listened to it extensively as a kid. I don't, you know, I don't remember. It was never something that I sought out. I just was kind of doing that. Mm -hmm. So when I, at some point <clears throat> I said to my folks, I, I really want to go over to, America, because I feel like all the, the, I felt all the best players were here. And, you know, South Africa was really out on a limb. It was so the, you know, in those days, the world was really isolated. It wasn't as interconnected as it is today. Right. And I wanted to come and hear people play here. And I wanted to see if I could play, you know, with, with people, with people here. And so they said, okay, provided you get a degree. And that's, that's uh, you know, and I, you know, sent in a tape for New England Conservatory and was able to get in there and did a jazz degree and a classical degree at the same time. I actually applied for the jazz department and they accepted me into the classical department. 
uh, which I uh, just still never doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and then I, I did both. I did both degrees at the same time. And then at the end of it, they said, well, you've only paid for one degree, even though you've got both, but we can give you one of them. And so I sort of thought, well, I don't know if I can go to New York and say I've got a jazz degree. So it was kind of back then it was not so prevalent as it is now, so I took the classical degree. Got you. Um, but the other thing was that right at the time when I came over, the whole you know, uh, Bitches Brew came out and the whole kind of jazz rock thing was happening prior to the, like the fusion thing. It was, it was, it was Bitches Brew and very early weather report. And, um, and I was kind of fascinated by the mixture of, of like jazz and rock. And so I, at that point, I really got interested in jazz, but I kind of thought of it as like really a, a way to make me a better rock player. It wasn't like I wanted to be a jazz guy, although <clears throat> for all that time at school, for about five years, that's all I listened to. I didn't listen to any rock music at all, although I'd grown up on like, you know, the whole English British invasion stuff. I knew all the cream stuff and the Hendrix stuff and all that very, very well. And those drummers really well. But when I got into the jazz stuff, you know, it was all Tony Williams, Elvin, Jack DeJanet, all that kind of stuff. And that's all I listened to. And when I came out of that and went back into rock again, I sort of had all these other ideas and, and stuff. I mean, it seems pretty commonplace now, but in those days, I think a lot of people hadn't heard rock drummers play with like a little more of a, taking it a little more out there and a little more inflection you know, back then. Right, uh, right. So that sort of made a difference for me. And I, you know, got like a bunch of gigs and it made me sort of a little different from some of the other people. Um, you know, now it's, it's all different. Like everybody has access to everything. And, you know, there's just a zillion like brilliant people floating around all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I also, and I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about this, about us having that access to everything. But I've, you know, having access and and being totally immersed in that in that type of thing for a long time like for you whether it be south african music or someone who grows up with you know parents who listen to listen to funk their entire lives and, and you just sort of like you said you didn't know how you learned it but you sort of learned it by osmosis um mm -hmm. and i how do you think that we're supposed to digest all the information that's out there now because we're bombarded with every everything like you said mm -hmm. is there how do we mm -hmm. do we have to make the decision to say I'm go really going to learn this thing and go deep with this thing, or or do you have any advice for that? Well, I don't know. I mean, the whole definition of the Letterman Show was that you played a lot of different styles because you had to, you know, play. You never knew one day you'd play with Tony Bennett, the next day you'd play with Pete Townsend, you know, the next day you whatever. You know what I mean? It was always different. So. But I was always aware that, okay, I'm never going to play reggae as well as a guy that just has grown up in Jamaica and that's all that they know and they are so deep into it, you know? Mm -hmm. But, I, but I, I kind of did feel like if you get into it and you get some of the nuances and basically whatever style you play, it has to have a really good feel. 
and you know like like the field sort of trumps everything and then all that then all besides the field would be like some of the not idiosyncrasies but some of the the, the vocab in 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 that style and if you marry some of the vocab with the style uh with a feel you can kind of get by with playing a lot of different stuff i don't know if you can get like super super deep into every single thing I mm-hmm. uh, probably not, you know, and uh, that is something that that uh, does cross my mind at times. It's like, you know, I mean, the thing that I that is most in my DNA would be like the 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 uh, rock stuff. You know what I mean? I can. That's what I played when I was a teenager, and that's what comes most naturally to me. But I still like enjoy. You know, you can get yourself if you. I think if you just do something for a while and immerse yourself in it, you can get like pretty proficient at it very quickly, mm-hmm. provided that it's feeling right. You know what I mean? Because people will respond to that no matter what, and you can you can tailor what you're playing to to fit the style. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I don't know if you can get the ultimate in every single thing. Where do probably you th- not? Yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, where do you think the where do you think the feel is developed on the bandstand or in the practice room? I think, well, I think you have to be, got to be inside of you for starters, and then you can develop it, you know? So, I mean, but the, I think uh, like, uh, let's see, I mean, the drummer will bring it, you know, the, everyone will bring their feel and like their groove. But I mean, uh, if you're in a band or playing with people, it's got to kind of all be, it's all got to gel together mm-hmm. at or the let same me, I guess, time. Let me rephrase the question. Do you, how, how do we, how do you think one can develop better feel? Is it playing with more people? Is it, is it shedding particular feels like playing along with records? Is it a combination of the two? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you, you know, you don't have to be like perfectly in time to have a good feel. I mean, there's a lot of records, uh, and I'm not talking about all, all the stuff that's done now that's all on the grid and everything, but you go back and listen to records when they didn't play on the grid, and sometimes you can put the record down, you put the needle down, you know, uh, at the top of the song, and you can put it down at the end of the song, and the song will have drifted quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Usually it gets faster. Uh, but it's not something that you hear it go during the song. But somehow it did, you know, and you can still enjoy the whole song. You're not going to be like the tempo police going, oh, it's sped up, it's sped up. It just sounds exciting and it sounds great. Mm-hmm. But but the way I think, you know, you can put on a metronome in the practice room and you can sing a song to yourself and you might find when you go from the verse to the chorus, like all of a sudden – the metronome wants to make you push the chorus a little bit ahead or hold it back because, you know, and, and that that can, can make you aware of of the sections in the song. So if you do that by yourself for a while and then you play with a band, um, you can probably bring that consistency uh, with you to the band. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like I don't know. It's like I I was listening to a drummer, you know, recently, and to me it sounded like it was getting 
slower, but I have a feeling like the guy was just kind of holding it back a lot. He was just maybe like on, and my tendency would have been maybe to push it a little bit more. Like everyone kind of feels it in a different a different place. But like Miles Davis said, you know, he was talking about Max Roach, and he said, you know, Max is back there protecting the beat. And I felt like that was such a cool way of putting it. It's like he was <laughs> – he was like the keeper of the beat, you know what I mean? And keeping mm-hmm. it in its place. And so that's sort of like a big role of the drummer. Although I feel like everyone is responsible for their own time. It's not just the drummer. But, you know, you keep the song in a certain kind of a, a certain kind of a place. I mean, the other way to, do, to, to help with that is to actually record yourself and listen to yourself critically, which can be absolutely brutal. Yeah, And then you'll hear from a distance, you know, whether whether you are, like, speeding up or slowing down. Mm-hmm. You know, and I find that particularly difficult because I'll listen to someone play and I'll hear them speed up and slow down and it won't bother me at all. I'll go, okay, well, that feels cool anyway. It doesn't matter. Well, isn't that what and it's all about, hear- right? Isn't, like, you yeah, want that emotion it and it's like... You t- do. You know, but if I hear myself do it, it drives me nuts because I want to be so perfectly on it, you know, all the time. Right. But I, I mean, I think that, you know, as humans, we have a tendency to maybe push certain parts of the song and, uh, and pull back certain parts of the song. And, and I think that, um, like the little imperfections are kind of what makes the song, what makes it cool. It's like, a drum machine doesn't have any imperfections, and you know that's why certain times a human is way better. And it's it's because of the imperfections that make it cool, not because of the humans playing perfectly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but I mean, if you sort of take an equation like time is perfect time, and heartbeat is like your your the human emotion to speed up and slow down, then my my little thing is time plus heartbeat equals feel. And so, you know, the, and the feel is the thing that you really want to go for all the time. Uh, you know, because if you, if you make the music feel good and people feel good. I had someone recently say to me, oh, you're so easy to play with. And I took that as a huge compliment because it meant that I was somehow creating a nice wide ditch. You know what I mean? For mm-hmm. the person to play in and be able to go down the line and not kind of veer off out of it and just kind of keep them within a certain, certain parameters. Right. And, you know, I guess, I guess that's what drummers have to do. Yeah. I, I, uh, I agree with you. Do you, do you think that, that your feel, or let me rephrase that. Do you think that good feel is something that you're just born with, or do you think that it's something that can be developed over time? I think it's something you're born with, but I think you can develop it. I think that you can. I think that you can develop. In fact, you know, definitely. I mean, but just through ex- experience, it's like, like for example, like if you, when people do fills, sometimes because they get so involved in the fill, you know, they it's it's like hard to be subjective and objective all mm-hmm. the time. So if you think of your playing, if you could look at it from above instead of being like a jigsaw puzzle, you're looking at it above, you can see how the pieces fit together. 
sometimes when you're down at the bottom trying to fit the pieces together, you know, you're just involved in that. So if someone is, if you're doing a fill, but you kind of lose sight of the music, you can, it's easy to speed up the fill or slow down or do something weird to it. Mm -hmm. And so if you know about yourself, oh, I tend to kind of rush, I tend to kind of rush this fill in this spot. You can, you know, teachers are, okay, well, let me try and hold it back a little bit, and then maybe it'll fall more in time. And then, so then you've improved the time for that particular part. You know what I mean? Where it didn't necessarily, you know, you didn't play it perfectly in the beginning, but you found a way to improve it so that from then on you can play it and you can hold, okay, I know, I just got to relax and hold it back here and it's going to flow much better. Mm-hmm. So that's so you definitely can improve it. But, uh, you know, the other thing is, is that I think it's something that you have to go for every time you play. It's like all the time. It's like when you're playing, no matter if you're playing the most basic one and three, two and four, or something complicated, I mean, the, the, the most important thing to me is that it like, feels really good. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't make it any difference. Like how complicated the part is, it makes no difference whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, it's got to feel good, and you got to make the other people feel good, and you got to make the audience nod their heads or tap their toes, or whatever the hell they do. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's the most important thing. So, I mean, I think it's better to simplify what you do. Don't sacrifice the groove for anything, I guess, I'm saying, because that's going to be the most important thing. At least that's what I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know for me, you know, there's a lot of times where I'm playing and I'm thinking, Am I, is, is this really for the music or is this for me? And if it's for right. me, well, I need to know, cut that out quickly. <laughs> I know, it's hard. It's hard. You know, you like, you know, you, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, you, you want to try stuff, you want to put stuff in, and you want to challenge yourself. You mm-hmm. don't want to just stay in the same safe place all the time. So you have to kind of – but, you know, I think, I, you know, and I say this and I don't know if I always do it, but really the, the overall music comes first, and that's the most important thing. And, you know, another way of, of looking at also – and this I learned, I got a chance to play with some really good band leaders in my time. Mm-hmm. And so one of them was Hugh Masekela. Oh, from, yeah. Uh, you know, and he was fantastic. And he would say, no one in the band is more important than anyone else. And you're all parts of a, a spoke in the wheel. And you just look at yourself like that. You know what I mean? You've mm-hmm. all got to be aligned and you all set the wheel turns nicely. And you can't, you know, just keep your keep your place, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I sort of like that about like what weather report their 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 thing in the beginning, especially. But I think it always was was like we don't nobody solos, and we're all soloing kind of all the time. You know what I mean? So it was like it's like they, you know what I mean? It's never like here I am, here I am. You just kind of interweaving in within like the the whole music all the time mm-hmm. but i think i thought the thing that you said was so great because it just really keeps you in your place you know you're there to service you're you're part of a bigger cause than 
than yourself. Yeah. And he's he's South African too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was actually very responsible for the Graceland record. But like Paul said that that he said Hugh Masekela held my hand the whole way through that project. Really? And he helped yeah, he helped get the guys together and um he had apparently had like really a lot to do with it. Hmm. I never knew that. Yeah. So you had mentioned playing with a lot of great band leaders, uh, one of them being Paul Schaefer. And yep. talk to me about some of the some of the, the challenges that you had on on the uh the Letterman show, because you're not only are you playing all this music for the show, but then you also have to learn styles and songs and things like that if you're serving as the backing band for whatever artists came in. Um, mm-hmm. was that a, was that a really steep learning curve for you? Did you feel like you were already, already, uh, well enough accomplished to, to be in that role or was, was it like, Oh, I, I gotta like get up to speed pretty quickly here. I think, um, I could do it really easily, all of it, but I think it took me a while to realize that for myself. Cause when I first got the gig, I was like elated. And then a little while after that, I was like, why me? How come I got it? There's a lot of fucking, excuse my language. There's no, a lot no, of no, like really great. There's a lot of great drummers around, you know, and, and, uh, is that like a, am I, like an imposter syndrome almost or like, yeah, it might've been, might've been, you know, mm-hmm. and it took me a while to kind of play, play, do it. And, you know, till like sort of came into my own and sort of eventually and went, you know, I've been doing this for a while and uh, everyone's happy and there's no problem. And so, um, you know, then I got over myself and then everything was fine. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but and, and that is a fairly common thing for, for artists to go through in various, you know. I've heard that story so many times, you know, from actors and musicians and all this stuff. Yeah. But the, the music... Um, you know, it, it, I, you know, I I was the right person for that job because I could play all those different styles and really convincingly. And I'd, like the thing was that I had done a lot of stuff before the Letterman show. Like I, you know, I played I played with a lot of people and like pretty deep into each style that I'd played with, like the people that I'd I had played with. So, um. I didn't feel like I was just sort of dabbling in that style, you know, just for the TV purpose of it. I felt like I really kind of knew the stuff. Right. But we would get the, we would get, uh, you know, the, the music beforehand, you know, say it was, uh, you know, just, and that might just be a, in the beginning, it was just a cassette recording, uh, but, you know, say it was a CD of the song. Um, and um, so we had to come into the show knowing the song and the arrangement because we would only rehearse it a few times. The rehearsal with the, with the guest act was in probably not more than half an hour, mm-hmm. 40, 40 minutes tops. And then we would, we would spend the other 20 minutes rehearsing the other music for the show. Right. So, but it was very, very quick. You had to be super fast. And, um, and then also very often, you know, Letterman would go off on a tangent during the show and everything would change. So Paul would be calling audibles and changing songs and all that all the time. 
So you had to be completely on your toes the whole time. Um, but, you know, in terms of playing with the artists, we kind of knew. We walked in. I, I was always prepared. I'd make my chart. And I would be able to play the song pretty much the first time. It was just a matter of getting comfortable. And you want the artist to get comfortable um, because, the, you know, they're on the show with an unfamiliar band. They've only got a couple of shots at the song, and then they have to do it for real. Mm -hmm. And you only do it once on the show. Right. So your job was to make people feel comfortable. And I've played with people where I've kind of visibly seen them relax you know what i mean after a few bars i can see them go all right well you know the band's cool they they got it so now i can kind of just worry about myself kind of thing right hey are you tired of coded drum heads chipping and flaking after only a few hours of play tired of premature denning and breakage well welcome to the next generation of coded drum heads evan's new uv coding technology they're made with proprietary inks and a new UV-like curing process, so these heads are able to withstand strikes, brush strokes, and rim shots better than anything on Earth. That means you get to play heads that sound and look fresh for longer, and you can spend less time tuning and modifying and changing heads. They're available in one-ply and two-ply, as well as Evans proprietary hydraulic and EMAD systems. Check them out by going to evansdrumheads.com. Do you know why when you tune a drum, you're supposed to go diagonal across the drum that's because your drum is flawed i hate to break it to you but your drum is flawed because of the way that the edge is the typical edge doesn't allow the drum head to sit on it properly so when you tighten down one lug it causes the drum head to shift and pop up on the other side that's why you have to tune it diagonally but now with the new sonic clear edge from mapex that's a thing of the past. The Sonic Clear Edge allows the head to sit flush, so it promotes ease of tuning, increased shell resonance, and optimal tonal clarity. So you're going to have to do a lot less work and get a lot greater sound. To learn more about the Sonic Clear Edge, go to mapexdrums.com. How do you stay creative in in that sort of setting where, I mean, you played on that, how long were you on that show? 21 years? 29. 29 years. So how do you, was it was it easy or was it a challenge to stay creative in that space or did you had to go outside of the show? Because I guess what people don't realize too is like sometimes when you're playing these tunes, like the intro and outro and all that kind of stuff, you're only playing for, you know, 47 seconds and then and then it goes to commercial and you're done playing. Um, did you have uh, to? No, no, not not for us. No, not for us. We were, we would play and would go to commercial. We'd keep playing. Interesting. And so, and sometimes when the when the, sometimes they would rewrite the show, and we would end up playing for like eight minutes or something like that. And, uh, you know, the show's done was on tape delay, so we would do it in the late afternoon, and then they showed it a few hours later. Mm -hmm. And this was to somehow coordinate it with the West Coast and the East Coast and everything. But we would play, and we would bash. You know, we'd play hard. We'd, we'd play. We'd keep the audience entertained. Right. So, yeah. so we definitely played all the time. The thing about it that made it interesting was we played different music, you know, every day. So mm -hmm. the theme was the same, but, um, but uh, we'd have different break songs. 
I mean, we'd, we'd repeat them, you know, but we'd have different break songs, and then we'd play different songs with the guests. So it wasn't like I was doing the same show every single day for all that time. It was a different. It was a different show every day. Having said that, then after you know, twenty nine years, you can kind of walk in there and, and you know, you, you don't necessarily have exactly the same excitement every day, but you know, you kind of judge it on almost like a sine wave. You know, it's like mm-hmm. an arc where like you'll have a bunch of really great shows, and then it might dip for a little while, and then it, you know, gets really great again. You know, you're on these super long, you know, yearly cycles. Although we never knew how long the show was going to go on for. And, you know, our contract, we were signed like a couple of years at a time. So we never knew, I, no one knew it was going to last all that long. Um, but it just did. Mm-hmm. It's a great show. But it, 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 it yeah, it was. Uh, but it came, you know, it was very interesting because it was different all the time. And then the actual content of the show as the drummer, you know, I was also had to watch Letterman all the time in case he said something, you know, and he needed a rim shot and blah, blah, blah. Right. So, so it was, you know, there wasn't like all that much just given stuff. You couldn't really, you had to pay attention. And that, of course, you know, made it more interesting. Mm-hmm. I've, I've watched numerous, numerous times the, the iconic, uh, episode where where james brown came and i know that that was steve jordan playing drums at the time yeah um, but yeah. Did, did you have were there any sort of i'm sure a lot and, and numerous to count but is there a couple moments that really stand out to you that were just like it was like capturing lightning in a bottle almost and that really stick out to you from those years at, at letterman well i got to play with james brown a few times as well mm-hmm. and there was there was wasn't i know that first time was really a fantastic one but there was another time when he was going to play with his band and um, and they were down rehearsing at SIR. And so he came to rehearse and they got stuck in traffic. They couldn't get there. And so he started rehearsing with us. And then the band showed up and they started walking towards the, you know, drums and bass and stuff. And James Brown put his hand up and said, no, you know, I'm going to play with these guys. Nice. And so I got to play with him. And there was a few times that I got to play with him. And um, so that was a thrill. And, um, you know, playing with Steve Winwood was a thrill and Townsend was a thrill. And, you know, I mean, I, but probably the greatest, and then Springsteen was great, but the, probably the greatest for me was playing with Miles Davis. Oh, because yeah, I was sure. such a, you know, massive, massive, massive fan of his. And, um, and then again with him, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. At first, they were going to do it with the drum machine. And then they had me on sticks, and then they had me on brushes, and then uh, yeah. Anyway, it finally worked out, and um, it was a soft song that was like a in, in three four, and then we sort of went into when he put his hand down, it went to a sort of little quasi funk thing in the middle, and then back into the three four. But I just felt like I was like sitting in the eye of a hurricane. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just emotionally it was like that. And then I just said to myself, you know, I haven't, I haven't um, worked my, you know, all these years to like, you know, not enjoy this. And so when it actually came time to play on the show with him, I, I actually felt very calm. And when I listened to it, it's, it's so much sounds like a Miles Davis band. Um, 
you know, just the mood of it. It's like it's it's just like a, a, a moody, very quiet piece. But somehow he got everybody to play. I mean, you really had to be on your best behavior, you know, with him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to anyway, play anything that was going to uh, mess anything up in any way or draw attention. You know what I mean? And I, so, I, I left that to, like, you know, Marcus Miller and Sanborn and them. But, um, yeah, that was, just, that was an absolutely thrilling time. Really That's was. Amazing. Was he, was yeah. he, uh, how, what was he like to work with? I know it was a, it was a, you know, a short, uh, spot in time, but right. was he, well, he was, he, he was, he was really nice. I, I sort of asked him what he wanted, what he, what I should play. And he just kind of made these like guttural sounds, hmm. like sort of like roo, roo, roo. And, but somehow I kind of knew what he meant by that. And then I, I, although I ended up playing like just a, like three, four brushes kind of thing, but I, I don't know why. I just sort of think I understood what he said. And then after we finished playing, I, I uh, Marcus took me into the, his dressing room, and um, and I, he asked me where I was from, and I told him, and he said, "Well, it's good you got out of there because you know South Africa was South Africa wasn't." the greatest place in those days. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then he said to me, uh, you got a good feel for them drums. And so that just pretty much made my life after I heard that. Yeah. And you know, I carry that with me as a, like a building block. It's like, whenever I have any problems, I just go, you know, miles <clears throat> gave me a, a seal of approval. So, you know, I just go with that. Yeah. What else do you need? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So how did, and I, I'm guessing that being on that show for so many years opened a lot of other doors for you to work with other artists or, or tour or things like that. How, how much of your, of your career outside of the Letterman show do you, do you credit back to the show? Not, not that much really. I mean, I got, there was only really one time, I think when, when Gary Moore came on the show, you know, the English guitarist and mm -hmm. he. He hired Will and myself. Having played with us on the show, he hired us to play on his record. But I did that. That didn't happen as, as much as you would think. And certainly the touring didn't happen because the show would go. It was hard to tour because the show would be all year round. Right. I mean, we would have times off, and in those times off, I would schedule stuff. Um, and you know, the thing was, it was late afternoon, so you could do stuff in the nights. You could do sessions in the morning, sessions in the afternoon before the show. And, you know, there was a lot of time to do other things. <coughs> Excuse me. I think what it did, though, was give me sort of a lot of notoriety. Like mm -hmm. I was the guy on TV who a lot of people saw play and got to play with a lot of different people. And so it made uh, – it elevated my stature, certainly, because I was that guy that was – not that many shows like that in the States. It was like one of the coveted gigs that just kind of fell in my lap, quite honestly, because I I used to see Paul around town and I'd say, let me sub on the show. And, and um, he said, yeah, 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 we will, we will. And they never did. And, <laughs> and then eventually, I, I guess Charlie Drayton and, and um, 
and Steve were playing with Neil Young, and they were both out of town, and whoever they regularly call wasn't there, and they, they asked me to do a week, and that ended up being two weeks, and then, um, and then uh, about a few weeks later, like they, Paul called me up and said, Steve's not going to do the show anymore. And we really like the way you sub. So if you like, if you want it, the job's yours. So like all of a sudden, like I had this job. It was nuts. Wow. You know? um, so uh, hang on. What was your question? Oh yeah. So so I I did a lot of other stuff, but I felt like I did my other stuff because I I just. It wasn't really from the show. It was mm -hmm. kind of from what I did. Like I had a fairly good career going before the show. Right. In terms of I'd done a bunch of like high profile records. And um I had a you know, my own band and you know, it was going everything was going well. Of course the show was a, a life changer, but um I had done a whole lot of stuff and was you know, and so I think I got I probably got work because of the show because I was the guy on Letterman, but it, I don't think it was like uh, as direct as like people coming in and like you know snatching you up and wanting to do stuff with you necessarily. Right, now that makes sense. Yeah. So, in terms of uh, so are you are you on tour with Joe Bonamassa now, or are you what's what's the status with you and him? Uh, well, what happened was in June, I broke my ankle. Oh, how did you do and, that? Uh, I, I slipped. And, um, and like one minute I was fine. And the next minute I was on my back and I lifted my leg up and my foot was hanging off at a right angle. Oh. And, uh, and, um, <clears throat> I'd broken my ankle in three places. And so, and I called him. We were about to go to Abbey Road and record, and mm -hmm. I was just like, oh, I was just like really upset, you know. So anyway, it turned out that they postponed Abbey Road till January, <clears throat> so <clears throat> I can do it. And um, But I missed the summer tour, and then I missed the Australian tour, and then I said I was ready for to go on tour with them this fall. But the insurance company would not insure me the tour insurance. They said that I've got a pre-existing condition, and they won't insure me until January. Ugh. So, so I, Joe played three nights at the Beacon Theater in New York last week, and I went down. And to be honest, I was like worried, you know, like I know the drummer is a he's a fantastic drummer. This guy Lamar Carter. Mm -hmm. great great drummer and they, Joe's got him you know you've been using him and anyway so I went to listen the band sounded great and then Joe had me come and sit in for two songs oh cool and and um, and um, so I played you know all three nights I did two songs and then it was like okay I'm um, uh, you know I'll be joining the show again in January we go to Abbey Road February we start touring great so it's all it's all coming back uh, okay. That's great. So you know, but of course, uh, yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's all good. It's all really good. Yeah, I just had uh, a gentleman by the name of Scott Pellegram on a couple of weeks ago who had a really bad. He broke. I mean, he broke his leg in multiple different places and everything. And 
and yeah. had to go through the whole whole rehab process and and sort of learning to play again and and uh wow so was it was it tough was it a tough rehab process for you or, or you know getting your leg back up? so i mean i've got like i i have one more rehab session to go on monday I had one today, but the subways were broken. Uh, the subways didn't stop. I couldn't get down there. But uh, uh, these are my last couple of, of rehabs, and then I've just got to do exercises on my own. But uh, it was pretty bad. I mean, it was a, a full-on operation. I got metal in my ankle. And um, and then I was in a boot, and I got out of the boot, and my leg, my ankle would swell up like crazy, and I had to start eventually, like, just really easy on the pedal and then, you know, a little bit more and then it would be ice it and all that. It was like a long, long, a whole long process. I mean, I've been, this happened on June the 10th, you right. know, and it's only now that I'm, and my ankle still, they said it's going to take another six months before you completely better. But wow, I'm, you know, I'm walking around, I can play, mm -hmm. I can, you know, I, I can feel that it's not, you know, Totally cool, but it's definitely cool enough to do anything. Right, well, and cool. um, you know, I've still got like another six weeks before I join them. And but there's going to be no problem. I could, quite honestly, I could tour with them to, tonight, and mm -hmm. I'd be fine. Well, that's good. Do you? But do... yeah, it's yeah. What were you going to say? I was going to say, although it sucked, it kind of, it sort of stopped me in my tracks. You know, ever since the Letterman show. <clears throat> I went straight on to Joe, and I went from, I mean, I was home. I was playing, you know, every day with Letterman and for, for 29 years, and but I was at home, and now I was going on tour, and Joe tours really extensively. So I was away a lot, and and uh, I think I've been touring with him for about four years, and he's like, two, he's on the road a lot. So I got to stop and suddenly be home and for a while not play at all, not knowing if I could play, and then kind of seeing like I can. Um, you know, but I, it, it, in a way, in the weirdest way, it was kind of a positive experience. And I think that it's helped me like look at stuff no matter what happens, like to try and find the positive in it and, and turn it around and make it work for you. Mm -hmm. You know, because I could have easily like sat around and felt sorry for myself and all that stuff. Um, but you know, it's, I don't know how to explain why, but in a way, I think it was great that it happened. Isn't it amazing how life has its own ways of slowing us down? Sometimes it's yeah. a gentle nudge and sometimes it's, it's a not so gentle nudge, but a kick in the foot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that, that you were able to look at it positively because I know that a lot of people would sit there and wallow in self-pity and, and, uh, and feel like you said, feel sorry for themselves and, and. It could really, it could be, you know, a devastating thing if you let it be that. Yeah. No, I, I try and, you know, really try and make make it positive, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, it could it always be, things can always be worse. Yeah. So, you know. For sure. Anyway, it was great to see them last week, and uh, I'm really looking forward to going back. That So the tour starts, so, you said, what, in January? Yeah, well, the Abbey Road's in January, and then we start in February. Got you. And I recommend yeah. anyone uh, to go out and see Anton on the road with Joe Bonamassa. And then, so do you do, what do you do uh, in New York in town? Are you doing anything in town? Are you, are you, do you teach in town? Are you gigging in town where people, can people catch yeah, you there? I've got, yeah, a little bit. I, I've got, um, 
I, you know, because I'm on the road a lot, when I come home, I don't necessarily look to do stuff because mm-hmm. it's more like I just want to kind of take a break, you know, because it's he like tours and then he stops for a few weeks, then he tours some more and we're out like an awful lot. So, but uh, this Monday, and I don't know if this is going to be aired by then, I'm playing with uh, guitarist Oz Noy and Will Lee's playing bass mm-hmm. at a little club called The Bitter End. And mm-hmm. um, I don't, if you don't know Oz, he's an absolutely amazing guitarist. Yeah, I, I lived outside of New York for a long time, so I would go to 55 <clears throat> Bar and The Bitter End and all that. And see yeah, all those right, guys. right, right. Yeah, yeah, Wayne and... Uh, yeah. And Wayne and Anyway, so I'm playing and, with... I'm yep. playing with right, right, yeah. I, I did a few gigs with Wayne. It was fantastic. He's but, amazing. Um, anyway, the, so I'm playing with Oz and Will on Monday. I've got a few other gigs with this guy, Dylan Roddick, who's uh, it's like, I don't know if it's considered alternative, but it's like his kind of music. It's really great. It's great and very, very different. So I'm doing that. I'm doing, you know, I've got a Pro Tools uh, drum set up uh, and so I do tracks for people, and I have to go out and do a couple of tracks for someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's like a, a little bit of recording, a little bit of live gigs, and then, you know, before you know it, it's going to be January, and I'm, I'll be in London. Right, right. So, yeah. Well, that's amazing. And uh, I I urge anyone to, one, go see you on tour with Joe Bonamassa, and two, if you're in New York City and trying to see some really great music, go to the 55 Bar or to the Bitter End, and, like, you can catch – you know, a slew of people, you know, hopefully they would catch you while you're there. But there's, you know, there's also a ton of great musicians who are in and oh, out yeah. of there every yeah. night. So. I think yeah, Mike Stern plays there. And I know that Wayne and Keith and Tim LaFave are going to be doing a, some gigs towards the end of the year. So mm. that's probably a must-see. Yeah, you know? for sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, Anton, I want to, uh, one, I want to congratulate you on all the past success that you've had and also continued success in the future and also want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me so candidly and also for inspiring an amazing drum that served me very well in my career over the years. <laughs> my pleasure. And well, no, really nice to talk to you as well. Likewise. Uh, I hope I didn't say anything that you got to cut out and everything. No, you did not. If I did, if I did cut it out. No, we'll leave it. We leave it in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That was the amazing Anton Fig. For the show notes, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 534. If you haven't already, sign up for the mailing list. I'll send you a free copy of my ebook, Stick Control Variations, which is just 11 creative exercises to help you increase your chops, your speed, your independence, all that fun stuff. Plus, I send out an email every Friday just to let you know what was released this week so that way you're not missing anything. And that's about it. That's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.